right, before we jump into the text, which you'll notice is very, very uh, short this morning, uh, very brief, <clears throat> want to tell everyone uh, what to expect, want to talk to our kids, our little ones, tell you all what the passage is about, uh, and uh, what the uh, sermon is going to be about. So, <clears throat> kids, two years ago, two years ago, uh, Jax, my oldest son, came up to me and he said, Dad, why do you love me? And I looked at Jax and I said, Jax, I love you because you are, you're so fast. Which is really hard because then two weeks later, he broke his leg. And for like six weeks, I really didn't love Jax that much. Okay? And then, it was like a year ago, Peyton, my other son, came up to me and he's like, Dad, why do you love me? And I was like, oh, Peyton, I love you so much because you're so funny. And it was really hard a week later when he got the flu. <clears throat> so for like two weeks, I didn't love him that much because he wasn't being funny. He was being like really grumpy and he was like in his bed really sick. It was, it was, that was a hard two weeks. And then like last week, Maisie, my, my little daughter, my young daughter came up to me and said, uh, dad, why do you love me? I said, oh, Maisie, I love you because you're good at soccer. And she's like, but dad, I don't want to play soccer anymore. I was like, no, Maisie, you have to play soccer. Then I won't love you. Okay. Kids. Is that true? Did I say that stuff? No. No, I did not say that. Uh, if I had said that, would that make me a good dad or a bad dad? That would make me a terrible dad, a bad dad. Boo. We do not like that dad. Okay, so kids, but think about this. Like, what if, ask yourself this, kids. What if you went home today and you asked your parents, Mom, Dad, why do you love me? What do you think they'd say? Like, what if they said, oh, because you're so smart, and then you go and you fail a test at school, ooh. Or if they say, because, oh, I love you because you're so beautiful, and then you're walking along, and you trip and fall, and you knock out a couple teeth, and you smash your nose, and you got a black eye, oh, no, you're not looking too good anymore. Like, why do you think your parents, if your parents loved you because you were good at something, that would be so scary, because then what if you weren't good anymore? Here's the good news. Here's why your parents love you. Your parents love you because they love you. And that is awesome news. Think about it this way. Why does God love you? God loves you, kids, because he loves you. And that is such good news. And how do you know, kids, how do you know that God loves you? Come on, somebody give me the, the good answer. The Bible, what does the Bible tell us about God's love for us? The Bible tells us that God loves you so much that he, he sent his son to live and to die for you. Even when you were still a sinner, he comes and lives and dies for you to save you. That's how much God loves you. That's how you can know he always will love you. That's what we're going to be talking about today. That's the most awesomest news. And what do you want to do with that? What do, I want, what do I want you to do with that, kids? I want you to remember that. That's what I want you to do. Remember this for your whole life. God loves you because he loves you. And you know that because of Jesus. That's what we're talking about today. This is big stuff we're talking about today. Uh, we're looking at the Apostle Paul's first and second letters to the Thessalonians. We're in the second letter now. Uh, these are two of Paul's earliest letters to the church. Dealing with stuff like Jesus has come, he has lived, he died, he was raised, and now he's up in heaven. 
literally up in heaven, reigning over us forever and ever. Uh, what are we supposed to do now? And Paul is writing to them. Uh, he wrote Second uh, Thessalonians just weeks after First Thessalonians. Uh, in First Thessalonians, people were freaking out, uh, uh, freaking out so much they were neglecting the Christian life, like how you're supposed to live your life day to day, because they were obsessed with Jesus coming back at any moment. So they weren't working, they weren't loving each other, they weren't taking care of each other or themselves. And Paul writes First Th Thessalonians, they say, cut that out, stop, get get back to living. We, you don't know when Jesus is coming back. It could be today, tomorrow. It could be. A thousand years from now, we don't know. So you wait patiently and you live and uh, get back to your responsibilities. Now he's writing 2 Thessalonians because uh, they've gone the other way. Of Now they don't even care about Jesus coming back. It's like it's not even a thing. Uh, uh, and, and it's robbing them of this hope and this assurance of Jesus' return. And so here, in these very brief but very, very profound. It's profoundness, by the way. I don't think profundity is a word. And uh, <clears throat> this very, very uh, brief but profound two verses, Paul is giving thanks to God uh, that they will not remain deceived about this hope that they have, this salvation, that glory that is to come. There is something, if you look at the title of that sermon, there is something here Paul is thankful for that we want to be thankful for. So, uh, please stand. This is going to be stand and sit real quick, but please stand uh, <clears throat> for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. <clears throat> Please be seated. Uh, okay, the so what, uh, the application part of the sermon, it's right here at the beginning. As in, I want to give you something to be thankful for, and it's not my gift. It's, <laughs> it's God's gift to you. <clears throat> I just want to make it clear because the something to be thankful for here is a thing that none of us think of being something that we can be thankful for, that we should be thankful for. We don't think of this thing as, oh yeah, we're so thankful for that. It's this, <clears throat> you are chosen. You're chosen. Verse 13. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, <clears throat> brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. You're the chosen ones. This is this election stuff. God choosing you. It, 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 this is, not everybody's crazy about this. Let me break it down how this works. God choosing you works like this. Uh, at the beginning, at the beginning, when God and the devil were choosing teams, uh, God got first pick because he's God, uh, and he foresaw that you, that you were going to be really, really good at kickball. Uh, and he saw that you got real talent. He saw that you were going to be super faithful, that you're going to be a good person. 
he saw that you were going to pick him anyways to be on his team and so he's thinking of all that you could do for team jesus so at the beginning of all things he picked you okay that's a joke i hope you caught that like i'm joking hey and uh, i'm making a hilarious joke and we're all laughing on the inside um but no joke on the inside that's the default mode of our thinking about election about being chosen there was something in me he saw you you may not like election but election is in the bible and it's not just here it's all over we have to deal with it and everywhere the bible talks about election about being chosen it talks about election the way it's talked about here that before he laid the foundation of the cosmos, God chose those whom he desired for salvation, not because of anything in them, but out of the sheer grace of his will. Again, I know some of us don't like this stuff. One objection uh, is that this, we're just, we're diving right in here. Uh, let's get to the objections. One objection is that this teaching about election, about God choosing you, leads to spiritual arrogance. As in, you, you think God chose you? Uh, you election types, you know, and then they, you know, you Calvinist, you reformed types, think you're the chosen ones. Well, if you think that about yourself, you think that about your group, that is going to make you the most arrogant, self-righteous, narcissistic people on the planet. Now, <clears throat> that's, that's one objection. And we have, to, we have to admit, is it possible that the biblical teaching on election about God choosing those to be saved, does that lead, can that lead, is it possible that that leads to arrogance among some people in the church? Yes. But that's because those arrogant people actually do not understand election. They've completely missed it. Because election is that God chose me because I could not choose him on my own. There's a story, <clears throat> I think this is uh, from, I heard this so long ago, I think this is from a time when R.C. Sproul, so a theologian pastor, he's passed away, he was a uh, pastor in, our, uh, in the PCA. <clears throat> he was teaching a class on this in seminary. And, and a student got up and, and, and said, I just, I, cannot, I just can't believe this election stuff. This bothers me so much. I can't believe this election stuff. Why can't God just choose everyone? I don't buy it. I believe in free will. And R.C. Sproul, whoever the professor was, actually was, uh, said this, said, I understand. I understand your objection. This is really hard stuff to believe, but there are big, big problems if you do not accept this. And he asked the student, to make the point, he asked the student, why are you a Christian and your roommate isn't? Because the roommate was not. And the student replied, well, because I accepted Christ and my roommate didn't. And the professor said, yes, great. Okay, so why did you accept Christ and your roommate didn't? And the student replied, well, because I repented of my sin and my roommate wouldn't. And the professor looks at her and says, yes, great, right. Now, why did you repent of your sin and your roommate wouldn't? 
And the student replied, well, because I was willing to admit I was a sinner, and my roommate wasn't. And the professor said, yes, great. Okay, now why were you willing to admit you were a sinner and your roommate wasn't? And they did this for about five minutes. And on and on they went, and the point the professor finally makes is this, is like, listen, if you believe that the only difference between you and your roommate is actually God's grace, that God is the one who opened up your heart and has not opened up your roommate's heart, at least we have to say, at least not yet, if that is the only difference, then you don't have any basis on which to hate her, look down on her. Then you have no grounds <clears throat> to feel superior <clears throat> to anyone. But <clears throat> if you believe, excuse me, I'm going <clears> to <throat> not do this. But if you believe the difference between you and your roommate was that you were a little bit better, a little bit smarter, a little bit more humble, or a little more wiser, a little bit more spiritual, if you believe the difference is not located in God, but it's located in you, then you now have some grounds on which to look down on other people. Here, we have to ask ourselves, ask yourself this question. Why am I saved and not someone else? We, I think we all agree, we all have got to say, it is by God's grace. I have not earned it. Right? So unless, unless you have divine election as ultimately behind that answer, it's all by grace, then you do have some reason to boast. You cannot honestly, consistently say, well, yeah, no, it's all by grace, but also, you know, I guess, I guess I had better parents, or I guess, I guess I was born in the right place, right time, or I guess maybe I, I kind of made a better decision because, may, I don't know, maybe I'm just, a, maybe I have just a little more integrity, maybe I have just a little more intelligence. I guess I saw something that others didn't see because maybe I'm just a little more spiritually sensitive. I guess I was able to muster up some belief that others couldn't because I have just a little more willpower. That, that is going to work itself out in your life in all kinds of nasty, nasty ways. And you will feel justified in looking down on other people <clears throat> who don't believe. But when you realize he had to choose you to be saved, that humbles you. But there's more humbling here to election. Another objection to election is this. Uh, this just is not fair. Okay, okay, I'm hearing what you're saying, but this is just, it's not fair that God elects some but not others. I understand that too. But to object to that means uh, you're still struggling with the premise of the whole thing because the idea of fairness is based on merit. Fairness is getting what you deserve. And the Bible's really clear. Nobody deserves salvation. We actually don't want, one of my friends said this, uh, we actually don't want God. We don't want to argue with God to be fair. If you're guilty and, and you're convicted uh, as a criminal you're not begging the judge for the judge's justice. 
you're begging for mercy. For God to be fair is to give us what we deserve, which is eternal punishment. And for God to do that with some people is fair. That's how we, we've got to start from that starting point. It is fair unless we argue that God is under obligation to provide salvation for sinners in the first place. So R.C. Sproul says this. He says, grace that is owed, that's not grace. If God owes you grace, then we're no longer talking about grace. We're talking about payment. We're talking about just due. The question is not why does God save some and not others. The question is why did God save any at all? And this makes it personal. Because there's another objection, <clears throat> which is the this is an honest question. Okay, well then, why does God love me and not others? So let's go Old Testament. Why did God choose to love Abraham and bless the nations through him? Because Abraham was a great guy? We're told in, in a later book in Joshua, we're, we're told that Abraham is actually a pagan idolater who has no idea who God is, and God comes to him. Go New Testament. Why did God choose Paul to be his apostle, uh, who ends up going all over the world, evangelizing all over the world, uh, and ends up writing most of the New Testament? Why did God choose Paul? Because Paul was a super terrific guy. Paul was a genocidal murderer. He was awful. And he says, he's like, I, I know, I know that I am literally the worst person who has ever lived. Uh, why did God choose Israel to be his people? It says this in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 7, verses 6 to, eight, 6 to 8. It says, the Lord God, the Lord your God has chosen, this is Moses talking to Israel, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of, all the peace, uh, out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. It is because the Lord loves you. Which, that, that was a long sentence. You gotta go back to that. You remember how he started the sentence. How he starts his sen sentence is, the Lord set his love on you and chose you because the Lord loves you. Like, wait, wait, saying, the Lord loves you because he loves you. And that seems like a, what we call a tautology. <clears throat> it's this something that is logically true by necessity. Like, uh, who survives? The fittest. Okay, who are the fittest? Uh, those who survive. Why does God love you and not others? I don't know. I don't know. Because the reason God chooses to love one over another is hidden in God's own mind, in his will. What we do know is God loves you because he loves you. And, and you, here's the good news. <clears throat> you don't know ultimately when he might make this love known to those he has set his love on who don't yet believe. Everywhere election appears in the Bible, it is never about human merit. It is never about human accomplishment. It is always about divine grace and mercy 
And therefore, election is always meant to humble you and to be an awesome encouragement as it reminds you of that divine grace and mercy. Now, confession. Uh, it's not just something. Uh, one thing we have to be thankful for in this passage. There's, there's another thing. There's actually a bunch of things. I'm just going to bring up one more thing. It's this. You're chosen and you're called. You, you're called. Verse 14. And the normal, when we hear that word calling, we think of the Bible and Bible calling. The normal way we use that calling language is to say, I'm called to be a missionary. I'm called to be a pastor. I'm called to full-time ministry. I'm called to be an officer in the church uh, or, uh, you know, outside the church stuff of I'm called to be a teacher. I'm called to be a doctor. I'm called to be an attorney. It is obvious that we all missed our calling to be plumbers. That was made really clear by the storm. Totally missed that calling, uh, and I mean it. Uh, that, that calling stuff, that's true. Like, that's true. Uh, but that's not the way the New Testament talks about calling when it talks about calling. The New Testament, like right here, talks about calling unto salvation. As in, as in how does God's electing us from eternity, from before the beginning of the foundation of the world, as it really makes clear in Ephesians um, that, we, that we confessed at the beginning, uh, how does God's electing us from eternity, how does that get worked out in time and history. I said, okay, I'm, I'm chosen. Well, when does my choosing take effect in my life? It is when you're called through the gospel. And who comes calling? God, verse 14. To this, he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The pronoun game is so fun. Uh, to this, what? He, who, called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The he, the immediate reference is verse 13. The he is God, the Holy Spirit. Back in verse 13, the Holy Spirit called you to this. And the this, uh, back in verse 13, is this salvation through the Spirit's sanctifying work. So God chose you, and he called you. And for what? You were not chosen, you were not called for arrogance. You were chosen for salvation, a salvation that no one can attain by themselves in and through their own efforts. God chose you to be saved through the calling and the sanctification of the Spirit. Uh, that's the sanctifying work. Just, if you want to hear more about sanctification, plug uh, later today from 3.30 to 5, we're going to be doing a whole thing on sanctification. So just a word here on it. The sanctifying work of the Spirit in your life. Uh, this is uh, the work from the moment you're given the gift of faith, which is a gift. Your faith is a gift by the Spirit. All the way through a life characterized as a life of faith, of believing in the truth of the gospel. The, the sanctifying work goes on to the very end of Jesus coming you back to the very end of Jesus coming back or calling you home. So from beginning to end, it's God who saves you. Now here's where another objection is made. Okay, wait. <clears throat> what if, Spirit's calling, wait, 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 what if someone wants to believe in Jesus but is not admitted into heaven 
simply because they were not elect. They weren't called. Well, election does not exclude anybody from heaven that wants in. Because people sometimes think of uh, heaven as this hot club uh, that everyone wants to get into, and there's this huge line to get in, and there's this VIP list and uh, that God has made, that he's drafted, and you're not on the list. And the door is slammed, and you're outside on the door banging on the door to get in. But you're not getting in. Or you can think of the NFL draft that just, that just happened, uh, of all these hopes and dreams of these college players to get drafted, and then some don't get picked. Okay, but that's not, that is not the picture the Bible paints for us when it talks about election and calling. The reality is, everyone is running in the opposite direction, away from God. Nobody wants to be in God's club. Nobody wants to get drafted to be on God's team. Romans 3 makes this really clear. The Bible makes this really clear. No one seeks God. No one is seeking after God, not the God of the Bible, not, not the God of grace. The good news is that the God of grace is seeking after us. And the truth is that the only people that will want God are the elect when God comes along in their lives and calls them and changes the thing that they want. He changes our hearts. That change begins with the Spirit of God coming and calling us. It's like, think of it like this. It's like you're asleep, dead asleep, right? Uh, and the Spirit comes and He calls you. He wakes you up from your death slumber and you wake up to new life. The good news is this call is it's irresistible. I call my kids to come to breakfast. I call my kids to come to dinner. I call my kids to come pick up their stuff, and nothing happens. No answer. When the Spirit calls, you must answer. You think of Jesus calling Lazarus. Lazarus, Lazarus who's been dead for four days, and he's in a tomb, and Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And he comes out. The call is irresistible. C.S. Lewis, uh, well-known 20th century English professor, professor at Oxford and Cambridge, one of those guys, uh, Christian theologian, he used to be a staunch atheist. And in his book, Surprised by Joy, he describes the moment he became a Christian. He's riding on top of one of those English two-decker buses, uh, and, and uh, he, he remembers this. He says, without words, and I think almost without images, a fact about myself was somehow presented to me. I became aware that I was holding something at bay or shutting something out, or if you like, that I was wearing some stiff clothing like corsets or even like a suit of armor as if I were a lobster. I felt myself being there and then given a free choice. I could open the door or keep it shut. I could unbuckle the armor or keep it on. Neither choice was presented as a duty. No threat or promise was attached to either, though I knew that to open the door or to take off the, the corslet meant the incalculable. The choice appeared to be momentous, but it was also strangely unemotional. I was moved by no desires or fears. In a sense, I was not moved by anything. I chose to open, to unbuckle, to loosen the rein. 
And I say I chose, yet it did not really seem possible to do the opposite. See, Lewis struggled with this, this thing. He really struggled with whether or not he actually made that choice to put his faith in Jesus or whether he was chosen and called irresistibly to put his faith in Jesus. He goes back and forth, and later he describes God in another writing as the hound of heaven, going after his people like a hound on the trail of a, of a fox. And he writes, I was never so happy to be caught. You know, Anne Lamott, another uh, novelist, an American novelist, uh, she says this. Uh, uh, this is the PG version. She's, she, she uses strong language. Uh, she's a great writer. Uh, she said, I did not mean to be a Christian. I have been very clear about that. My first words upon encountering the presence of Jesus for the first time 12 years ago were, I swear to God, I would rather die. I really would have rather died at that point than to have my wonderful, brilliant, left-wing, non-believer friends know that I had begun to love Jesus. I think they would have been less appalled if I had developed a close personal friendship with Strom Thurmond. At least, there's some reason to believe that Strom Thurmond is a real person, you know, more or less. But I never felt like I had much choice with Jesus. He was relentless. I didn't experience him so much as the hound of heaven. She's referring to Lewis there. I didn't so much experience him as the hound of heaven, as the old description has it. Uh, I didn't experience him so much as the hound of heaven, as the old description has it, but as the alley cat of heaven, who seemed to believe that if it just keeps showing up, mewing outside your door, you'd eventually open up and give him a bowl of milk. Of course, as soon as you do, you are, let's just say, you're, you're in trouble. Uh, and the next thing you know, he's sleeping on your bed every night and stepping on your chest at dawn to play a little push-push. I resisted as long as I could, like Sam I am in Green Eggs and Ham. I would not, could not in a boat. I could not, would not with a goat. I do not want to follow Jesus. I just want to, I just want expensive cheeses or something. Anyway, he wore me out. He won. I was tired and vulnerable, and he won. I let him in. This is what I said at the moment of my conversion. I said, PG version, forget it. Come in. I quit. The exercise of the Spirit, this is, this is Richard Gaffin, New Testament uh, scholar, it says, the exercise of the Spirit's power and calling, it produces in each sinner an enduring change. The result of the Spirit calling you is a permanent, regenerate state. And it's marked by this lasting disposition, this new condition, what Scripture calls a new heart. That is, at the core of my being, I am no longer against God and disposed to rebel against His will, but now and forever for Him and disposed in the deepest recesses of who I am to delight in doing his will. He says the definitive, nothing less eschatological, that's just a big uh, ultimate, the definitive, nothing less than ultimate death to life change affected and maintained in believers by the Spirit. This provides a stable basis within us for his continuing day-by-day -day activity of renewing us, of maturing us, of growing us, for his continuing uh, toward completion 
the good work begun in us. He's going to finish what he started in us. And the way the Spirit chooses, the way the Spirit chooses, this is the Spirit's choice. We don't get to tell the Spirit how he works. The Spirit tells us how he works, and he tells us that he chooses to work in calling you and sanctifying you, verse 14, through, quote, our gospel, says Paul. The gospel, loved ones, the gospel is our gospel. But the gospel is not about our lives. The gospel is not about what we do. The gospel is about what Jesus has done. The gospel is about the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus into heaven where he now reigns and he is coming back. So to bring this all home, uh, this something to be thankful for that gives us assurance, that gives us hope, is, is this question here. Did Jesus make salvation possible? Or did Jesus actually accomplish salvation for you? Just listen to some of this language um, about Jesus' death. And ask yourself this, is this the language that Jesus' death simply made salvation possible? Or is the language here that his death actually secured your salvation? A bunch of verses here. Uh, we could go to 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Hebrews 9, uh, if, but this is Ephesians 5, 2. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There are all these verses that sure seem to talk about Jesus' death as this sacrifice that substitutes for our death and condemnation. You can run to Hebrews 2, 1 John 2, here's Romans 3. God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over our former sins. You go to all these verses in the Bible that sure seem to talk about Jesus' death actually propitiating. Fancy, fancy word that just means turning away God's wrath, exhausting God's wrath, turning it away from us because Jesus took it on himself in our place. We could run to Colossians, Colossians 1, 19. Uh, we could run to Romans 5. Here's Romans 5. It, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. All these verses in the Bible sure seem to talk about Jesus' death reconciling us to God. That reconciliation stuff is you make enemies friends. Last one, we run to Acts 20. Here's 1 Peter 1 knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood. You were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. There are all these verses in the Bible that, that sure seem to talk about Jesus' death ransoming, obtaining, redeeming us, freeing us, us, we who were once slaves to sin. The Bible clearly talks about Jesus' death as this substitutionary sacrifice, the propitiation, the reconciliation, the redeeming work that has saved us. The question is, uh, do, do we dare think 
do we do we doubt that Christ's life and death did not actually secure the salvation for those whom the Father elected and for those whom the Spirit is calling and sanctifying? And do, do you think that Christ's life and death might not secure the salvation for those for whom it was designed? I mean, how is it possible that the Bible talks about Jesus' work as a substitutionary sacrifice, a propitiation, this reconcilia- reconciliation, this redemption, and yet be applied to people by the Spirit who are actually going to end up eternally perishing? Think of the unity of the Trinity. One of my campus minister friends, buddies, Matt Howell, has been super helpful here. Uh, he says, the Father elects those who will be saved. The Holy Spirit calls and sanctifies from beginning to end those who are saved. Are we then going to assume the Son is not on the same page and somehow fails in his work of redemption in his life, death, and resurrection? It's not possible. Here's here's a a super-duper helpful alliteration um, that explains this, okay? The Father, God the Father authors your salvation. God the Son accomplishes your salvation. And the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, applies your salvation. The Father authors your salvation. He planned it. He elected those. He would give the Son as a reward uh, uh, for accomplishing the plan of salvation. And the Son, He goes and He does it. He accomplishes your salvation. He secured it. He did what we couldn't do, living that life of perfect obedience for us that we can't live, dying to pay the penalty of condemnation that we don't want to die and experience. He did that for us. And the Spirit applies that salvation to you. He calls you, raising you up to new spiritual life. He gives you faith. And He unites you to Jesus through which, all of, through which he applies all of the benefits of Jesus' work for you. Loved ones, I'm trying to tell you, the gospel is finished. Jesus has accomplished it. It is done. And for this, we have assurance for this life. For all of this, we have hope for the life in heaven that is to come. For all of this, we are thankful. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, that you are God day by day. We thank you for the promise. We thank you for the faith that you give to us, for that grace that will prove sufficient for all the needs of each hour of each day. We thank you that we can look to you again today with praise in our hearts and thanksgiving in our words as we look to you, the author and the finisher of our faith. We thank you that we, can, that we can expect that your spirit is going to lead us in the way of life today, not going to the left or to the right, but to do that which is pleasing in your sight. And if and when we do stray, we thank you that, that you will lead us by your Holy Spirit in repentance to turn again to Jesus, in whom we really do have the forgiveness of our sins and righteousness and new life. We thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for the word of Christ. We thank you that from the beginning that that proclamation uh, has been made, been made known about the one who's going to be born of the woman, 
the one born under the law, that he would on our behalf fulfill all righteousness. And that his righteousness and his merit, that that would be counted to us as we look to him in faith. We are people whom you have chosen from everlasting. We pray that you'd continue your good work within us. Grant that we would be increasingly changed, sanctified, that in all our ways we'd bring honor to the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Help us to minister your word, all of us, to and to know how great uh, all that is needed to do that faithfully and to know above all else that there is the need of your spirit. We pray that our reliance would be upon you, that the ministry uh, of this church, of this people, would be a demonstration of that spirit, the spirit of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.